Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of interpreting the Bible and preaching the Word throughout the seasons of the church's life. In this episode, Old Testament scholar Mark Hamilton helps us to understand the scriptures that many churches will be reading the third week after Easter 2022. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this third in a series of podcasts related to the season between Easter and Pentecost in the year C of the lectionary or in common speech 2022. This week, we will see texts that help us get closer to that vision of God's triumph over evil being revealed to the whole world. And we'll hear some texts in a moment, but before we do, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the text we will hear today, the words of prophets and and sages and singers of long ago. We pray that we will hear in faith, trusting that we will receive from these words insight into your presence in our lives and into your glory. All praise be to you and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. The text for this week, the third Sunday after Easter, are Acts 9, 36-43, Psalm 23, Revelation 7, 9 through 17, and John 10, 22 through 30. I will take them in a slightly different order and just reflect upon them as, as we've been doing throughout this series. Uh, the first one is Acts 9, 36 to 43. It's, it's a charming little story just tucked away amongst between some very big stories. Uh, the story of the calling of Saul of Tarsus to become the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles on one hand, and on the other side, the story of Peter's mission to Cornelius and his household, in which the first Gentiles entered the way, as the early church called itself. That it, it tucked between those two grand, big scale stories is this very small one uh, about uh, Peter and Tabitha called Dorcas. Part of the reason the story is here is to get Peter from Jerusalem to Joppa, because it's in Joppa in chapter 10 that he will see the, the vision that calls him to, to, to speak to the Gentiles. And so he has to get to Joppa somehow. But, but there's more to it than that. Here, here he is, uh, traveling down on the seacoast uh, to a town called Joppa, which is Yafo, now part of Tel Aviv. Uh, and he hears about a community. There's a community there. He meets with those people, and he and we hear about a woman named Tabitha or Dorcas. Tabitha is her Aramaic name, and Greek equivalent is Dorcas. So, what we hear about this woman is verse uh, 36. She is devoted to good works and acts of charity. Now, if you've read. Acts and Luke before it very much, you know that those kinds of attributes are very important to Luke as he tries to portray, portray righteous people. Righteous people are those who care for those who are more vulnerable, uh, those who are in need. And that's what this woman, Tabitha, aka Dorcas, has done. Uh, she dies 
And when she dies, she's mourned particularly by the widows who, for whom she has made clothing. You think about it, I don't think Luke is trying to say that's what women do, they make clothing, or he's not trying to say this is some model, this is the only thing women can do, or any of that kind of stuff. He's not getting into those silly modern arguments. He's just saying, here's a woman who did what she could for other people, and what she could do is make clothes, which, by the way, is not a minor skill. Um, just try doing without them sometime and see how that goes for you. But she, she makes clothes for these people, and she makes clothes for people who, who are the most vulnerable. Uh, the widows, the people who may or may not have a family to support them, the people who are very much economically, at least, on the edge. Uh, and so she makes, makes clothes for these people, and she is grieved by those people because, grieved for by those people because she has died. It's an interesting text because it does get us into into a major theme in Luke and Acts about the church is the place where the widows and the orphans and the vulnerable are cared for. It is a, it's a theme that Luke picks up from the Old Testament, from the Pentateuch, which talks about uh, widows and orphans and migrants as those who are particularly under God's care and those for whom... Uh, the people of God must exercise considerable concern lest they incur divine wrath. Um, and so it's, if you are uh, not caring for these folks, you're not really a Christian. That's, I think, Luke's point. And, and uh, not, a, not a follower of the God of Israel. And so here, here we have in Acts, um, Peter takes shows concern for this community that has lost this, this woman, and so he raises her from the dead. Simple story, very sweet, very meaningful, just a tiny little gem between these two big, big stories. Now, another gem that's bigger, I think, is Psalm 23, the second text I will consider. Undoubtedly, it's the most famous of the Psalms. Uh, William Holiday, 30 years ago, wrote a book on Psalm 23 through the centuries that I think is still very valuable and worth reading, in which he talks about how this psalm has been interpreted over, over the past 2,500 years plus. Uh, it is precious to many people because it's the psalm people recite on their deathbed. How many people have gone into eternity with the words of this psalm on their lips? So there's something very powerful about it, certainly. Powerful in its simplicity. It has two basic images that control the movement of the psalm. The first image, of course, is the shepherd. It's God is the shepherd and we are the sheep. And we're not just uh, sheep that he uses to get mutton and wool, but we are in God's tender care. Uh, the shepherd imagery, of course, it ultimately is a royal imagery. It's God as king. God is the sovereign who tenderly cares for his subjects. But a lot of that is lost in this psalm because the imagery just focuses on provision. The Lord is my shepherd. I will not lack anything. And then we get the images of the sheep 
eating nice grass and lying down next to placid waters instead of the sheep who's on the trail drifting from one semi-brown and crunchy pasture, pasture to another, we get the idea of peacefulness and safety and fertility and, and all the rest, a, a kind of tender care, which is partly why this image is so beloved. And yet, of course, we also do get that sense of the sheep on the move. He leads me through the valley of gloom, or the old translations say, incorrectly, the valley of the shadow of death. There's a bit of a misunderstanding because shadow of death is, shadow is tselem and death is mavit. And the word in our text, it's salmavit, which sounded to people like the valley of death, but actually it just means gloom. I mean, we're, we're, we're passing through a narrow ravine and the shadows of the walls of the ravine uh, are so intense that the whole ravine is is fairly dark. And maybe maybe you've been through a place like that. There's, it's not dark in one sense, but it's, it's quite gloomy and scary and echoey. And you never quite know what might happen. Is there a predatory animal? And if so, where would I run to? Could a flash flood break out? You know, so it's, it's a dangerous place. The shepherd leads me through the dangerous place of life. And therefore, I am not afraid of evil or misfortune or calamity. I'm not afraid of those things because God's staff protects us, protects us from the shepherd can fend off the wild predatory animals. The shepherd can make sure his own footing is good so that if a sheep loses footing, it can be rescued. And the image goes in multiple directions. But there is also a second image in this psalm, and that is the, the image of the table. My cup run, runs over, you prepare a table in front of my enemies, all this sort of thing. Again, an image of provision and care. God has invited us to a party. And so we're not sheep anymore. We're human beings. And we are at his party at which he is not stinting. He doesn't serve us uh, celery sticks and, and cold, cold tacos or something like that. He serves us a fine banquet. The wine flows freely. The food is abundant. And anybody out there who hates us is envious. That's a bit of a sour note in a way. At, at least it seems that way at first. Uh, frankly, I don't want to eat in front of my enemies. Uh, I'd rather they were somewhere else. Uh, but the point is, it's deliverance. And, you know, in the Psalms, the, the language of enemy is, is a kind of catch-all for any sort of ad adversity that one might face. And it might be literal enemies, it might be might be something else, illness, for example, or it's just social isolation. The point is, um, whatever calamity that we face, whatever adversity we face, is overcome at God's banqueting table. But there is that last bit, because about, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, because the truth is, if you're invited to God's party, uh, you might not ever want to go home. And so this is the image of the person who resides in the temple. The house of the Lord is, of course, the temple. 
And so we have the image of the of the person who, whether a priest or a lay person, uh, is somehow closely associated with the temple for the rest of his life. Now, again, um, even the priests don't technically live inside the temple building. They live in houses nearby it. So we may not be talking about somebody who literally takes up residence in the building, but somebody whose life is so closely associated with this place at which God is present in a way that is not true anywhere else. So we have here the, um, the psalmist seeking to be close to God in, in whatever way that's possible for the rest of his or her life. Well, that's a beautiful text. Another beautiful text uh, appears to us in Revelation chapter 7. And here we get uh, another one of these songs. I, I'm actually quite glad that the lectionary was has a musical bent for this season of the year. Um, chapter 7 gives us, again, inside the heavenly throne room, as we talked about last time. The heaven is full of huge crowds of people. It's very noisy kind of place, but very melodious, harmonious kind of place as well. First of all, we see the, the people of Israel, the 12 tribes, each one with 12,000 people in it. So more or less equally sized. Obviously, it, we don't have to take the number seriously. The point is that the people of Israel are completely there, that God has kept all the promises that he made to Abraham and all his descendants forever and ever and he has not violated the covenant. Instead, he has fulfilled it and he has saved all these people. And then the, the psalm turn, or the revelation turns in the part we should read this week, not just from the 144,000 Jewish people, but from the rest of the crowd around, an innumerable crowd, a huge group of people from every tribe and people and language. Again, as I said last time, uh, diversity is baked into the Christian story. It's not an add-on. It's not a modern invention. It's not some kind of politically correct tangent or any of the sort. It's baked in. It's fundamental to the Christian faith. Christ died for all and invited all into his kingdom. Full stop. And I, it's a shame, really. We have to keep saying that these days because everything is so politicized and adversarial and, and unfortunately Christians are caught up in some of that political adversarial stuff to the extent that we forget our own core message. We scream and holler about how important it is to be a Christian but forget what that word means. And so a text like this reminds us what it means. The people cry out because they are the saved. And they've experienced going through the valley of gloom and being protected. And they have eaten at God's banqueting table. And they've been fed green grass. And they've lain next to placid waters. And so they can sing salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That God is the one who rescues all in danger. Salvation with all the many resonances that word has. Rescue in this life, rescue in the next life, rescue from sin, rescue from threatening evil people, rescue from sickness, 
rescue from danger, on and on it goes. Salvation in all its dimensions are the um, work of God, and therefore they, it will succeed because it's God who's up to it. And then uh, this, this beautiful text ends with, um, with this exchange. One of the elders addressed me. So he keeps talking. John keeps hearing from all these people. This, this, as, they, as, as they escort him through this, this theater of the divine, he says, uh, uh, who are these people? Uh, and John does what Ezekiel does. He says, uh, sir, you know. Which in Ezekiel, and I think also here, means I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm too afraid to venture an answer. <laughs> I don't know. This is kind of beyond my uh, experience, and I have trouble putting words to it. So would you mind telling me? And so he does tell him. He says, these are the ones who come through the great ordeal. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the believers who suffered, who died for their faith. Uh, these are the ones who joined Jesus in his suffering, just as he joined us in ours, and who in imitating his cross-shaped life received the same glory that he has also received. And so the, the, we get this other little song. They are, this is why they're before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. Verse 16, they will no longer hunger or thirst. I, I think, again, for us, those of us who are American Christians or Northern European Christians or Westerners in general, uh, the experience of hungering and thirsting is is pretty hard to to make sense of because that for most of us is not our experience. I know it is for some people in our culture. I know that it is for many people in our world, but for some of us, it is just not something we've had to worry about very much. And yet. The church is the body of people who do hunger and thirst. Some of them hunger and thirst for food and water. And our brothers and sisters do without while we uh, enrich ourselves and live very comfortably. I say brothers and sisters. Perhaps, perhaps we're not their brothers and sisters. We must at least entertain that possibility, frightening as it is. But uh, they're the ones whom God pays attention to. And so even if we don't hunger and thirst for food and water, we have to be in the business of hungering and thirsting for justice, for righteousness. Two words that mean the same thing. Because when we do that, we have a chance at helping relieve those who hunger and thirst for food and water. Jesus, God, seek justice and righteousness and seek to make sure that there is no more hunger or thirst. For the Lamb at the center of the throne is their shepherd. Here the connection to Psalm 23. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And then in an echo of Isaiah, of Isaiah, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Now, that, that brings us to our last text, which is John chapter 10. A text I, I confess I find difficult because it's, 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 it has a kind of edge to it that I, I find somewhat uncomfortable. Uh, it's about the conflict that Jesus engages in. Just before our reading in verse 22, Jesus has talked about being the good shepherd. Again, an echo of of Psalm 23. But here, uh, there's a conflict in which, uh, uh, well, at Hanukkah, so the Feast of Dedication, which is in Hanukkah, at Hanukkah, so December, and it's cold and maybe a little rainy and dreary. And uh, Jesus is in the, in, the temp in the temple precinct on the south side of this very very large portico called the stoa of the portico of solomon solomon's porch and um, so walking amongst the columns there it's a, must have been a quite a large building and um and they and people say you know are you the messiah if you are that's a, that's kind of an important bit of information we'd like to know Tell us one way or the other. And he says, as, as he does, he, he hates answering questions like that in a yes or no way because they're not really yes or no questions, even though they seem to be. Because if he is the Messiah and you believe he is the Messiah, then your life has to be lived in a very different way than if you think the answer to those questions is no. So if So he says... It's not a yes or no question. It's not that simple. And he says also, my sheep hear my voice. So the ones who are looking for the Messiah, he says, will see what the truth here is. Then he says the thing in verse 30, the Father and I are one. And that provokes people because it sounds to them like he's claiming to be deity. Now, of course, he couldn't be the Messiah. He would have to be a blasphemer if that's exactly what he's claiming. If they if they get it right, um, then then there's a real problem here. He doesn't quite say I'm equivalent to God, but he says there's an association here. In other words, he's not, you know, how he's not laying out all the Christological themes that the church explored over the next several hundred years. He's simply saying, I'm the one sent from the Father. And he clarifies this a little bit later. I'm the one who sent from the Father. And then he quotes Psalm 82, which is a, which is a, a judgment psalm in which God, uh, Yahweh, condemns, or Elohim actually, Elohim condemns the other gods and says, well, you say you're gods, but really, you're going to perish like a human being because you don't carry out justice. You're unjust. Jesus' point is slightly different. He says, if, if these beings can be called gods, can be associated with the God of heaven, and by the way, uh, in, um, in, the, in, the, in Jesus' time, the angels are also called elim, gods, in a text like the Song of the Sabbath Sacrifice from uh, Qumran, from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it's small g and capital G in our terminology, but it's God who is one and, and only, and also God as a category. And he says, well, I'm in that category without clarifying exactly where he is in that category. 
But he says, you know, I'm, I'm, I am with God. You should follow me. Again, it's a, it's a convoluted text. And I, I think if I were preaching this on this Sunday, I would have picked one of the other three. But here it is. It's Jesus saying, the, the sheep hear his voice. And that may be the main message we should bring away from it. The sheep hear his voice. That when we say God is our shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, Jesus is my shepherd, uh, we're not speaking about some fact that we happen to believe but that has no effect on how we live. If Jesus is our shepherd, we must follow him. And we must do so with joy and with anticipation. And we may do so with those attitudes precisely because he's the one who is our shepherd. We'll pick up that theme in our next podcast. Thank you for listening. I look forward to hearing from you. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.